February rolls around and shops fill with pink and red hearts and flowers and teddy bears. But where do all these Valentine's Day traditions come from? And what does it all mean? Can you tell me about Valentine's Day? Senior producer Allison Quantz turned to her four-year-old Evelyn to get her take. What is Valentine's Day? A day day where we make Valentine's. A day where we make Valentine's? Uh, What does that mean? Loving people. It means loving people? Uh Are there any decorations for Valentine's Day? Hearts. Hearts? What else? Glue. Glue? Oh, what do we need the glue for? To stick things on the the Valentine's. On the Valentine's. So Valentine's Day is mostly about crafting Valentine's? Yes. Yeah. You're loving people. And loving people. I love you. I love you. I love my beauty. (laughs) Hearts and glue. That's not a bad metaphor for today's show. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, Valentine's Day and the love that guides it. Kat Tracy is a professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. She says the origins of Valentine's Day are far from cute and cuddly, and they don't have a lot to do with St. Valentine. Kat, tell me the story of St. Valentine, who was executed February 14th by the Romans. Who executed him and why? Well, St. Valentine could be a number of different people. We don't actually know which one. There seems to be a number of St. Valentines who were executed for defying the laws and the rules of the Roman Empire. Now, the Catholic Church recognizes three different St. Valentines, all of whom were martyred by Roman officials. One of them performed illegal marriages uh, about the third century in Rome, and it was Claudius II who decided that single men may made better soldiers than those with wives and families. And so he outlawed marriage for young men. Valentine performed marriages for those young lovers in secret, and so he was executed for that. So that's Mm -hmm. one candidate for our Satan, Valentine. Another Valentine is Valentine of Tierney, a bishop who was the true namesake of the holiday. He was also beheaded by Claudius II outside of Rome. The third one may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons where they'd been beaten and tortured. But we don't actually know because the Catholic Church celebrates the feast days of saints who are executed on certain days. And February 14th may belong to any one of those Valentines. And it's possible that they're a composite and they've created this idea of one single Saint Valentine who in some way championed young lovers. Why would we go from Saint Valentine who was beheaded by the Romans and not particularly known for romance to Valentine's Day, the holiday of chocolates and love and that sort of thing? Well, romance is hard. Romance is dangerous, romance could be deadly, but that's not really why. It's partly because February is an amalgamation of a number of different traditions and a number of different religious observances that have to do with the beginning of spring and actually the end of winter. We are right in the middle of the winter festival season from the pre-Christian period. And all of those traditions about planting your fields on February 1st, which is the feast day of St. Brigid, who's the female Irish patron saint, and the spring celebration of Imbolc, which represents the very beginning of that spring fertility and life and Candlemas, which is the purification of the Virgin Mary after her giving birth to Jesus. All of these things happen in February and they get rolled into this idea of St. Valentine. One of the most popular ideas is that somehow St. Valentine's Day inherits the love tradition from Lupercalia. And Lupercalia was a Roman festival of the wolf where young men ran through the streets of Rome, tapping their intended or tapping women with goatskin whips dipped in blood in order to ensure (laughs) fertility. Now, that's one way to get a girl. But in this case, (laughs) Lupercalia was meant to be a fertility rite. And it's possible that these traditions all just kind of 
blend together with the idea of the beginning of planting for spring. It's part of the agricultural calendar. Candlemas ties into Imbolc as a festival of light as the days are starting to get longer. But we never actually associate Valentine's Day with love until the 14th century. And it's Geoffrey Chaucer who first pinpoints Valentine's Day as a celebration of love in his poem, Parliament of Fowls. And it's in that poem where a lover falls asleep. It's a dream vision, which is good because you have all kinds of plausible deniability if it's a dream. And when you have talking (laughs) birds, you need a certain amount of plausible deniability. (laughs) So in Parliament of Fowls, Chaucer's dreamer is witness to a debate among birds between two falcons vying for the affection of a female tercelet. And these two male birds are trying to get this female bird to choose them. And the whole dream vision has the lover going through the garden of love and passing the temple of Venus. Now, anytime the temple of Venus shows up in medieval literature or later early modern literature, it's usually a site of disastrous love because Venus was not really the goddess of love so much as she was the goddess of earth-shattering sex that often had horrible consequences. And for Chaucer, this lover goes past this temple of Venus, sees all of these images of women who've killed themselves for love or men who've died in the pursuit of love. It's actually kind of depressing. But then he's out in this garden of love listening to these birds debate and trying to get the female bird to choose them. And the end of the poem She doesn't. The female bird declines to make a choice. She chooses not to choose. And the goddess nature says, well, we'll come back again next year and do this all over again. (laughs) And so that's actually the first reference to Valentine's Day as a day to celebrate love in Western literature of any kind. And Chaucer names February 14th? Yes, he does. And he names St. Valentine's Day because the official Catholic holiday is... February 14th, that is the feast day of St. Valentine. And Chaucer specifically says it is on St. Valentine's Day that all of this occurs in the garden. So from Chaucer to Shakespeare, how did Shakespeare add to our perception of romance on Valentine's Day? To my knowledge, Shakespeare doesn't include Valentine's Day. For Shakespeare, the days where you engage your lovers are on the summer solstice, so on June 21st. So Midsummer Night's Dream, all of that occurs on the eve of the summer solstice. And again, following the agrarian Irish calendar with those festivals and feast days, that's a very significant day in non-Christian tradition. When you have the summer solstice and the longest day, And that's when a lot of lovers will engage with their intended. It's right in the middle of summer. And of course, before that is May 1st, which is Beltane. And Beltane is really the day for lovers because it's a feast day in Catholicism associated with the Virgin Mary, but it's the day that people would bless their cattle. They would build huge bonfires about 50 feet apart, and they would drive their cattle between the two bonfires to purify them and bless them, presumably at a stage where most of them were pregnant and would be giving birth soon. They wanted all of their cattle to be healthy. And humans would, of course, celebrate and party around the bonfires, and they might slip away into the hedgerows. And Led Zeppelin quite famously saying in Stairway to Heaven, if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. And that's a (laughs) reference to the fertility ritual of Beltane. So St. Valentine's Day really isn't associated with romantic love before Chaucer, and then not even after Chaucer until about the 18th century. What happens in the 18th century? How do we shift? The shift occurs in reading romantic literature. And there's this acknowledgement that there's certain days where you're going to start kind of seeding the path for lovers and for romantic encounters. And what happens in the 18th century is Somebody latches on, possibly through Chaucer, we don't actually know, to this idea where we're going to start giving gifts on the feast day of St. Valentine's Day. And we do have evidence that people started exchanging cards to each other 
in the 18th century. And then by the 19th century, it's completely taken off. And it is a, it is actually a big business where people are making handwritten cards. They're making decorations with hearts and they're associating love and Cupid with the feast day of St. Valentine. And it's entirely possible that it starts with somebody reading Chaucer in later centuries and thinking that this was what happened, that this is what everybody did. That happens with a lot of holidays where people start picking up medieval literature again and think, oh, this must be what everybody did. Mm -hmm. And so they make it into this huge industry. And then by the 19th century, it's big business. And so through the 20th century, Valentine's Day really picks up steam as a commercial holiday for love. Do you think these holidays are going to keep shifting and develop in meaning? I think so, because a lot of people are now more interested in finding out the origins, the pre-Christian origins or the non-Christian origins of several of these spring festivals. I mean, there are modern Wiccans who celebrate Imbolc and who celebrate the feast of the goddess Brigid, because the Irish Catholic saint, St. Bridget, is a variation of the Celtic goddess Brigid. And all of these things tie in and people are interested in finding out more about those origin stories. And a lot of people don't like Valentine's Day because of the commercialism. So some people still do it. Some people almost see it not as a day of holy obligation to go to church, which is what St. Valentine's Day originally would have been, is you are obligated to go to mass. But now they see it as a holy day of obligation to their loved ones who demand chocolates and roses. <laughs> and then people get cynical and they get angry about having to do this. So the holidays are constantly shifting and more people look at the original histories and say, you know, I want to celebrate the Feast of Light with Imbolc. I want to look at the significance of the spring holidays as a rejuvenation and a beginning of life, and not so much the commercialism of buying a box of chocolates on a day that somebody was beheaded. I think there's something really wonderful, though, about having cause to celebrate it all. I hate the obligation part of it, but the idea that it sort of more like Mardi Gras. I like the idea that it's a chance to blow it all out in whatever fashion works for you. Right? Or a chance. Absolutely. Yeah, right? Well, and Mardi Gras is part of this, where you get different religious traditions that combine together and make something new. Mardi Gras this year is the day before Valentine's Day, which is somewhat ironic because Valentine's Day is on the day that marks the beginning of Lent. And I suppose if you have to give something up, <laughs> you have Valentine's Day to do it. But right. Mardi, Gras, Mardi Gras begins with the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, and then it follows through the agricultural calendar the same as everything else. So Mardi Gras is that festival of excess and celebration, and it's all tied into this rejuvenation that comes with Imbolc, that comes even with the ancient celebrations of Lupercalia, but it's a Catholic variation of that because Mardi Gras is Catholic. You get it all out of your system because then you have to fast and then you have to fast and you have to sacrifice for Lent. Then that ties into the celebration of Easter, which is also tied to non-Christian fertility rituals and the spring equinox. So everything is symbiotic. Everything works together. <laughs> Tracy is a professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. Safety and security seem like obvious relationship goals, but they're surprisingly hard to achieve. Amber Pope is a licensed counselor and a professor at William & Mary. She shares some strategies for building safe and secure relationships with our loved ones, including fighting better. Amber, how often do you think people feel we're the only ones? You know, our relationship is really going through these rocky patches, but everybody else, it's just smooth sailing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would imagine quite frequently, you know, I think even in my own um, relationship, we have moments where uh, we're like, should it be this hard? <laughs> like, right. are we the only ones? 
Um, My partner's a counselor too. So we both know like in a logical manner that this is, you know, having these conflicts or some of the struggles we have are common and, you know, it's more about how we're navigating them. But in those moments, sometimes it feels so overwhelming and it does feel like, are other people really doing this? Like, is this, is this healthy? What, you know, what is happening? So I think it's pretty common, um, for people to feel somewhat isolated um, when they're struggling in their relationships, you know, and and sometimes depending on our other social supports around us, we might even be hesitant to talk to those people because we don't want to potentially have them look at our partner differently or in a negative light. And so I, I do think at times it can be somewhat isolating uh, if you are having struggles in your relationship. You've spoken about the importance of a safe and secure relationship with our partner. What does that mean to you? What is safe and secure when it comes to people we love? When I think of safety and security, one of the primary words that comes to my mind is connection. So it's feeling connected to the person that we're with, and that can include feeling comfortable with them, delving into a little bit of more of a therapeutic acronym. Dr. Sue Johnson, who developed emotionally focused therapy, uses the acronym A-R-E. A stands for accessible, so you know that your partner will be there when you need them. R stands for responsive, and so it's not just that you know, you can get to them, you can reach them when needed, but that they will respond in a way that's going to help you feel, again, that safety, that security. You know, they're going to attune to you and respond to you in a way that you need in that moment. And then the E is engaged, which, again, it means that they're present with you. They're not seeking to just like minimize what's happening and move on or sweep it under the rug, but they're in it with you. It's interesting. You talked about emotionally focused therapy. I heard about that for the first time last fall. Is it growing in popularity? Yes, it is. So it's really experiential about slowing um, the process down and helping couples really get in touch with what is driving the conflict versus the content of the conflict or here's a different behavior that you can do when you're in a conflict. Um, So that's how it would be primarily different from previous approaches. Safe and secure seems like a good thing to aim for in a committed relationship. Is it hard to achieve? Uh, I'd say yes and no. Um, You know, I I think it, it just is dependent on, to me, in lots of ways on what the person is coming in with in terms of their, you know, their own lived experience, their own history, you know, what were their familial relationships like if they had, if they have strong connections with their parents or their caregivers, um, then it's likely going to be easier for them to establish safe and secure intimate relationships because they have a model for that. And they learned how to be flexible and emotionally regulate as a result of having parents that provided that environment that demonstrated affection and unconditional and positive regard coupled with structure and, and rules and, and, and safety. Um, so for people who have grew up in those environments, it tends to be um, easier for people who grew up in environments where they didn't know what was going to happen from day to day in terms of their parents and caregivers, or they felt like they could never meet their parents, caregivers' expectations, um, or, you know, veering into emotional, psychological abuse, physical, sexual abuse, or neglect, um, you know, the more extensive forms of trauma in childhood, those people are going to have a harder time because their early childhood relationships didn't help them learn, and it didn't help their brains become wired to really, like, trust themselves or trust others. And so if you don't trust yourself or trust others, it's going to be hard to establish safe and secure relationships with other people as you get older. Um, But the cool thing and like the thing with emotionally focused therapy is our brains have neuroplasticity. So, you know, we can rewire those connections through experiences with others who, again, are accessible, responsive, and engaged over time. And so um, 
that, that, that can be hard though. And like speaking from my own personal experience that that can take quite a while to really learn to trust yourself and others. <laughs> Give me examples of how this sort of thing plays out between partners who, who show promise, but are really having these clashes over one, and it's probably usually one of them, doesn't feel safe and secure emotionally. Yeah. Um, you know, my initial reaction to that question is that if one doesn't feel safe and secure, it's likely both of them are experiencing that to an extent because that that's one of the oh. biggest pieces is both partners end up contributing to conflicts and arguments and the way that we respond. And even people who are more securely attached may be doing that. So, you know, it, it can be, um, I was getting up in the morning and, and, you know, getting ready to go to work and I walk by a kitchen sink full of dishes and I'm so like in my head thinking about what I have, the million things I have to do ahead of me that I don't stop to think, oh, it would help my partner to put the dishes up. And then my partner comes in and looks at the dishes and, you know, I can immediately see on their face that something's wrong. And then maybe my partner says like, you know, you could have helped put up the dishes and then it, that can just spiral out of control into an argument. But it's like, we're not really fighting about the dishes. It's more of, you know, for the, my partner who sees I didn't put the dishes up, it's like, are, are they important enough to me? Am I making them in our relationship and our home, our priority, uh, you know, and for me seeing their face or them saying something that I feel like is critical of me, it becomes like, am I good enough? Am I ever going to live up to their expectations? And so people who've been in conflicts, if you think about it, you've probably had those thoughts at some point, either like, I'm not good enough. I'm always failing my partner <laughs> or um, my partner's never there for me. I'm not number one to them. And so I think most people can relate to one of those positions in a relationship and those type of thoughts. And that's what's driving the conflict about the dishes. It's not really about the dishes in the sink. It's about, are my needs being met in this relationship? So let's just stick with that one simple example. Who does the dishes and who doesn't and how we all feel about that. What do you suggest? So, you know, that's part of, uh, you know, going back to like the emotionally focused therapy process, part of it is really helping the partner slow down. So you would take the conflict over the dishes and, you know, a question I would ask the um, partners are, if I was a fly on the wall, what would I see happen when you're arguing about the dishes, like walk me through it step by step. And I'm really seeking to understand what each person is thinking, feeling, and then that how that drives what they're doing in those moments during that argument. And so, you know, by slowing it down, I can, again, I can start to understand that it's this thought of, I have to do everything around here. You know, my partner's just in their own little world. I'm not important enough to them. Like that's the thought that's driving it. And then for the other partner, it's like, oh, you know, like I'll never live up to their expectations. Like they, I'm not neat enough or, um, you know, I, uh, I failed them again. Um, you know, I, I should have been more attentive and thought to do the dishes. And so you're really trying to get at like, what are those thoughts? And then, and then what are the emotions like they're experiencing driving the argument? So for the person that maybe doesn't feel like they're as important or as much of a priority, it's usually this fear of being alone, being abandoned or not mattering enough. And then, you know, for the partner who maybe feels like they let their partner down again, I'm failing my partner. I don't feel good enough. Again, it's these fears of failure or rejection. And that's what's really driving the whole thing about the dishes. And so it's learning to understand, again, more of what's happening for you in those moments, because if partners can come to understand it's something bigger stuff that you're bringing into this relationship from your histories that's then driving these conflicts, you can start to work through the conflicts in a different way. You also work specifically with people in LGBTQ plus communities. Mm -hmm. Is it the same for them in finding safe and secure intimate partners? You know, a lot of what I'm talking about is very similar. Um, you know, the way our intimate partnership plays out, um, 
no matter what your sexual, sexual orientation is uh, or what type of relationship configurations you're in, you know, that could include other like ethical non-monogamy and other types of relationships. These similar dynamics play out in terms of how do we communicate? How do we feel connected? What types of things disrupt that connection? You know, how do we try to come back and repair that connection? So a lot of that is similar. You know, I'd say one of the things that's really important to consider, like when I work with LGBTQ communities, is just the societal factors that can impact them. So what types of social supports they have. You know, LGBTQ folks are more likely to be isolated or rejected by their families. You know, they're more likely to have experienced uh, instances of bullying or harassment or even physical violence. And so they may be bringing more trauma in. It's not always, but there's that potential that they may be bringing more trauma into their intimate partnerships. And then how is that impacting their ability to connect with those partners? And so just considering those systemic factors is really important when working with partners that are in LGBTQ communities. What if one partner really is the problem? Does that ever happen? Uh, not to me. <laughs> so I'm not saying oh, that one partner wow. might not, unless it's an intimate partner violence relationship. If one partner is engaging in violence, like, yeah, and I want to give that caveat. Outside of that, no, um, I would say even if one partner maybe has more of their own individual struggles or something going on, both partners are always contributing to the negative um, relationship patterns that they're in. So um, they're they're both responsible for how they're communicating with each other in a way that's promoting disconnection rather than connection. Um, So that, and that's, again, just part of the um, view of EFT, it's never one partner. And that's the problem. It's the the cycle that they're caught in. You you said earlier, like get off balance. Um, you know, it's that being off balance. It's that negative cycle that they're caught in. That's the problem. Let's say we don't end up getting to counseling for the million reasons everybody has. Mm-hmm. What can we do to try to break that cycle and hear each other? I'd say when it comes to the conflicts, you know, I think it is those initial steps of recognizing, again, it's not about the dishes. It's not about the content of what's happening. <laughs> you both are contributing. You know, even if your partner did something that really hurt you, it's still needing to step back and think, how am I contributing to the way that we're communicating and arguing? You know, and I'd say trying to have some of these conversations with your partner when things are calm, when you are feeling connected, then you're going to be able to understand more of like where they were coming from in that moment when you were arguing over the dishes. That's so right. Amber, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me today. Amber Pope is a professor in the Counselor Education Program at William & Mary and a licensed professional counselor in Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Thriving intimate relationship starts way before the meet cute. Dana Henry says early, comprehensive, and age-appropriate sex education makes for happier, healthier relationships later in life. Dana Henry is a professor of health sciences at James Madison University. Dana, at a fairly young age in your career, you spent a couple of years as a sex therapist, or did therapy with couples over sex issues, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Who were these people? What were they seeking from you? Yeah. People come to sex therapy or to couples counseling for lots of different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's overtly about sex. So the their sex life is not happening the way that they want or not happening at all. Uh, one of the more common issues is what are called desire discrepancies, where the partners don't want sex as often or the same kinds of behaviors um, as each other. And so they're navigating that. And of course, that changes over your lifetime. 
Um, sometimes it was feelings about their body or past sexual trauma that they had not talked to their partner about. Um, for some, it was changes in their relationships. They were fighting over money or kids, and that sort of bled into their sexual relationship. And I don't remember who said this, but I remember learning sex is the barometer for your relationship. And so while there may be other things going on in their relationship, it was when their sex life was impacted that they finally sought out support. And for some couples, they just felt like they were bored and they had fallen into a routine and they wanted to try something new. I wouldn't say that's true for most people. And I think that's about this idea that like having great sex is like icing, but not the cake or something. And so spending money and spending time to like make your sex life better by going to talk to someone about it maybe wasn't seen as a, as legitimate as getting help for a real problem in your relationship. Along the way, during the two years you were doing this, you came to feel like, wow, there's a lot of good information people could have used when they were younger that might have helped out with some of this for them. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of the epiphany for me. So I was doing sex research and teaching, and then I was a therapist, and they were separate jobs. And then one day they weren't. When a client who I had to photocopy pages out of a human sexuality book because they just didn't even know about, like, where body parts were and how they worked. And the client said to me, why didn't anyone tell us this stuff before? And I said, that's a great question. I don't know. Because at the time, I knew nothing about formal sex education. So I started looking into it. It was the early to mid-2000s. It was sort of the heyday of the abstinence-only movement in the U.S. I was in Canada, and I was really fascinated by what was happening in the U.S. around sex education and the debates and arguments over should we tell kids everything, otherwise known as comprehensive sex ed, or should we just tell them not to have sex, like in the way that we tell kids don't do drugs? Um, and it just was fascinating. And so I left my clinical work to focus on prevention and uh, came to the U.S. to study with someone who had helped write some of the original guidelines for sex ed in the U.S. Uh, that was my advisor and learned a lot. You've come to believe, or have always believed, that abstinence-only teaching of sex ed really isn't productive. Why not? It isn't the whole point. Just don't have it yet. Deal with it later. I think one of the issues is that, unlike drugs, sex is a human need. Um, not everybody wants to have sex, but it's not the same as drugs, especially illicit drugs. And so having that same messaging about sex and drugs doesn't make sense. And really, the research bears this out. There is very little research to show that abstinence-only sex education actually works. In fact, some research has shown that it's harmful because then when kids eventually do have sex, they don't have the information they need to protect themselves and to have pleasurable, positive experiences. Um, and so I think that's the reason why sex educators, for the most part, really believe in comprehensive sex ed. And that is what most parents want. They want us in the schools to talk to kids about all kinds of things, including their bodies, relationships, consent, how to prevent violence, and then how do they have happy, healthy sexual relationships. And do we know most parents do want that? Most parents do want that. They want the schools. And it makes sense. I mean, how many parents are comfortable talking to their kids about sex? And how many kids want to talk to their parents about that? <laughs> I have a kid, and I'm a sex expert, and my kid does not want to talk to me about sex or puberty or any of that stuff. And so I can imagine what it's like for a typical parent who maybe also isn't as comfortable, doesn't have all the knowledge, uh, you would want an expert to talk to your kids about that. And, of course, as a parent, then you take that knowledge and information and you have a conversation with your kids about the values that you want to instill in them around their sexuality. That's the role for parents, and that's, I think, the role that parents want to take. You know, my very beloved parents never talked to me about sex ed, and I was perfectly fine with that. But when I had my own children, I thought, I'm going to do much better in the sense that I'm going to be ready for this by about the time they're 10 and yet, my first child wanted to learn about it when she was six. Mm -hmm. And I was so unprepared and uncomfortable and unsure if this was the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of parents, myself included, can relate to that story. 
and wanting to do sort of the right thing for our kids based on the experiences we had. And then we get caught off guard. And kids today are really different than we were when we were younger. We didn't have social media or access to pornography in a computer in our pockets. And the landscape has really changed around kids' sexuality and teen sexuality. We have no idea what's going through their heads. Yeah, we don't. Um, Luckily, there's a a lot of people writing books, and I can't highly recommend enough both reading books yourself as well as getting your kids' books. You don't have to have a quote-unquote talk with your kids. There are many age-appropriate books written by great authors, Corey Silverberg, for example, where you can buy them a book, leave it for them to read, and then check in with them to see if they have any questions. And then for yourself, there's many books written both for parents about how to understand teens and what's going on with sex today. Dr. Debbie Herbenick just wrote a recent book called Yes, Your Teen or Yes, Your Kid, and uh, talks about kind of some of the modern and contemporary issues in sexuality and teens. And then for your own sexuality, if you want to learn more and think about how to enhance your own sex life, you don't necessarily need to go to a therapist, though I do encourage you to go if that's something you want outside help with. Um, Emily Nagoski has written two books, one called Come As You Are, about sexual desire and how to understand it and how to navigate that in relationships, and a new book that came out on January 30th for couples on the same topic. What do you say to thoughtful parents who worry if they share explicit information with very young children on sex education, it could open the floodgates and send them forth with almost a mission to have sex rather than help them? Yeah, there's been studies about this. Talking to kids about sex doesn't make them want to go do it. Um, And also, if you give them information that they're not ready for, they don't take in that information. You see this when you take your kids to a movie and there's an adult joke and they don't understand why it's funny. And so if your kids ask you a question about sex, all of the experts say, uh, don't answer it. Ask them what they think. Ask them what they know. Ask them what they've heard first. Don't make assumptions about why they're asking you that or what information they're looking for. And then don't try to have a talk. Try to integrate it into everyday conversations. Maybe there's a song lyric and you're listening to music together or a line in a TV show or a movie or you're reading a book together and something sexual sexual comes up. That's a good time to kind of ask them what do they think about that and get kind of curious about what their knowledge is, what their understanding is, um, and just know that if you make a mistake, because we all do about everything as parents, doesn't mean you can't go back and talk to them again. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging, hey, I don't know that. Let's look it up together. What are the positive impacts of a really good sex ed class in, let's say, middle school and high school? So we know that when teens and young adults are given medically accurate, age-appropriate sexuality information, that they report both fewer negative outcomes from sex, so fewer unintended pregnancies and STDs, more use of contraception, but they also report better relationships, better communication with partners, and more accepting attitudes of other people. It's particularly important for LGBTQ youth to have comprehensive sex ed. Um, Having those conversations and acknowledging like, hey, there are people who like different things and who love people that are the same sex or gender as them can make you more accepting. And then there's less bullying and less problems in the school. Would you love to see schools even offer Classes on relationships, navigating just how to be with an intimate partner day to day. Yeah, I would. And and I think um, students and parents do, too. In fact, there was a recent study by AARP among older adults who said they wish they had more sex education when they were younger and had more knowledge. I have this I have this dream that uh, about how sex ed and relationship ed happens in schools, which is that every school would have somebody who's trained as a sex educator and or a family therapist who has expertise in relationships, who works for the school full time, not part time, not rotating to different schools and offers a pass fail kind of like life 101, relationships 101 
uh, type of class. And the classroom has couches or beanbag chairs, and the students feel comfortable to kind of talk about what life is like for them and to have a safe place to ask questions um, in a way that maybe they don't don't feel comfortable talking to their parents. And it would be even greater if this person were to offer this support to the families as well, where the parents could come and talk to this person at the school and get advice and help for their relationships, their parental relationships with their kids confidentially. Speaking of help for your own relationships, who whose advice do you enjoy the most? There are so many really good sex educators and relationship therapists. Um, I remember when I was training as a therapist, I attended a workshop with um, John Gottman and his wife, and he's a very famous marriage counselor and researcher. And he said, when thinking about people trying to find a partner, he said, you're not trying to find the one that you don't fight with, right? Like there's no relationship without conflict. What he said was find the person with the set of conflicts that you can live with for the rest of your life. And that's always kind of stuck with me over the years. And I think that's true not just for romantic relationships, but all kinds of relationships is relationships are not without conflict, but the skills that you have to manage those conflicts and navigate them are the important skills to develop. Dana Henry, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're welcome. Dana Henry is a professor of health sciences in the College of Health and Behavioral Studies at James Madison University. True love, is it in the head or the heart? or maybe in the gut. (laughs) No, this is not about your microbiome determining your love life, although surely someone is studying that. But my next guest wants to take a closer look at what our gut reactions say about how our relationships are really going. Lindsay Hicks is a psychology professor at Christopher Newport University. Lindsay, you didn't set out to be a sex researcher, but it's where you ended up. What got you hooked? I think realizing how important sexual relationships were to the health of long-term relationships. Uh, I like relationships for the commitment and the communication and that ooey-gooey, intimate, deep love stuff. (laughs) Uh, But sex is important for that. Sex creates or has the potential to create, I should say, um, positive experiences with a partner that can help us get through um, some of the more difficult moments. Now, I don't mean to imply that sex should be used as a Band-Aid when problems are present in the relationship. Um, Certainly problem solving and conflict resolution are an important piece of making relationships last. But with those uncomfortable moments, you've got to have some positivity. And I think that's what sex provides. You did a paper in grad school where you looked at the association between sexual frequency and gut-level attitudes about our love partners. Yes. When people had more frequent sex, they did not necessarily report that they were more satisfied with their partners. So we didn't find an association between sexual frequency and what people said about their happiness in their relationship. What we did find is that when people had more frequent sex, their gut level feelings about their partners were more positive. So suggesting this positive experience in the relationship, um, uh, you know, sex is a time for intimacy and connection and and good feelings that are biologically and physiologically uh, reinforced. Uh, this sex can create positive feelings and positive associations with the partner, even if at a more conscious, logical level, we're not necessarily tuning into the influence that sex is having on our relationships. And how are you going about studying people's gut reactions to one another? Yes. Well, uh, you can't necessarily ask people because research has shown that people don't always or can't always report on their gut level feelings. 
Um, so what we have to do instead is use a task that's referred to as an implicit task, meaning we don't outright just ask somebody, how do you feel about their partner? Instead, we put a picture of their partner up on a computer screen for about 300 milliseconds. And now 300 milliseconds is fairly quick. It's slow enough that I can register, oh, that's a picture of my partner. It's not subliminal, but uh, it's not so slow that it allows me to really study the photo and think deeply about the photo. It's just kind of that minimal exposure. Then after that picture has uh, been presented, participants are given a word and they're told that they need to sort the word as either positive or negative. If the word is something like excellent, they press a key on their keyboard to indicate that it is positive. If the word is something like horrible, they press the key on the keyboard to indicate that it's negative. And they do this many, many times, trial after trial. They see the picture of the partner, then they see the word, uh, and they indicate whether that word is good or bad. Then after they're done with the task, we average their reaction times to categorizing positive and negative words after seeing their partner. So if they have relatively positive feelings towards their partner, they should be faster to respond to those positive words. Uh, whereas if they have relatively positive feelings about their partner and they see a negative word, it's going to take just that much longer for their brains to kind of switch gears and categorize that word as negative. So is it predictive of more long-term happiness in a relationship if you have relatively more positive attitudes that are automatic at gut level toward your partner? Yes. And that's why I'm so excited about it is there's a growing number of studies showing that it's people's gut level feelings about their partner that predict their long-term relationship outcomes, that predict whether or not they'll be satisfied years from now or whether or not their relationships will still be intact years from now. It's not necessarily how people say they feel about their partners. It's not those more logical feelings, uh, those self-reported beliefs about the relationship that are predicting long-term satisfaction and long-term dissolution in the relationship. So you may say you have a great relationship and really positive feelings towards a partner, but deep down, almost unknown to you, have some negative feelings you haven't really explored or you aren't fully aware of. Yeah, that that seems to be the case. If I can talk about one study that I conducted yeah. uh, before I left grad school, we asked a bunch of people to tell us what their gut level feelings about their partners were. We didn't find that they reported accurately what their gut level feelings were. But then in another study, we said, okay, we'll give you a financial reward, the most accurate person to predict their gut level feelings about their partner will receive, I think it was $500. Then in that study, we found that people were able to report their gut level feelings. Are there things that you've learned through your research that we can probably do to boost our gut level positivity? Yes. And I'm so glad you asked this question because it's it's a question that probably keeps me up at night. You know, with this information, <laughs> what do we do? My advice uh, from my experience with this research and this literature is that we know that these gut level attitudes are influenced by our experiences. The more positive experiences we have with a partner, the more positivity show up, shows up in our gut level feelings. The more negative experiences we have, the more negativity shows up in our gut level feelings. Now, knowing that negativity in our relationships is almost inevitable, that to me suggests that if we want to sustain these positive gut level feelings, the best thing we can do is to try to infuse our relationship with some positivity. Go on dates, uh, watch a TV show on Netflix together and talk about it after, um, you know, have some intimate conversations about 
thoughts and feelings about the world or or uh, your kids or whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be necessarily expensive or elaborate, but I think we can infuse our relationships with these positive moments where we just enjoy one another to help kind of balance against some of that negativity that is just part of life. Who do you read in relationship science whose views and insights really inspire you? I really admire the work um, from Art Aaron. I really admire the work from Ben Carney and Thomas Bradbury, and of course, my PhD advisor, Jim McNulty. Art Aaron, for example, got a lot of publicity for the 36 questions it takes to fall in love. Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And he also has this fantastic work on self-expansion theory, suggesting that the best way to sustain happiness is to enjoy moments with your partner. Go on new adventures. Try a hobby that your partner loves that you've never done before. The other people I mentioned, so uh, Carney, Bradbury, McNulty, all of those people are making the really important point that relationships don't exist in a vacuum. There are external social factors that can make relationships a lot more challenging. And I think sometimes when relationships fail, people can feel like they failed. They are, you know, broken. But really, we have found that a lot of times the socioeconomic context of the relationship can explain more about why the relationship failed than the people involved in the relationship itself. Lindsay Hicks, this is so valuable. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Lindsay Hicks is a psychology professor at Christopher Newport University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costa was our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.